Leaders Talk, the interview podcast portraying leaders who are committed to better leadership, better organizations, and a better world. Powered by Leadership Choices. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Leaders Talk, the biographical interview podcast for better leadership, better organizations, and a better world. My name is Carsten Draht and I'm one of the managing partners of Leadership Choices. We are partners as a company of the Blanchard companies. And today, my guest is nobody else than Scott Blanchard. Leadership is something you do with people, not to people, right? Um, that that being a leader is about sitting side by side and it's it's about helping people succeed by the way that you interact, not something that you just do to people, you know, as if they're your, your charges. The president of Blanchard, uh, the leadership development company, well known for its model, situational leadership, one minute manager, and many other things. And Scott is the son of Ken Blanchard, who founded the company together with his wife, uh, Marjorie. And uh, he talks about how it is to grow up in the footsteps um, of a great man, of a great woman, and then eventually find your place in life and become the president of Blanchard right in the beginning of the COVID crisis and how he coped with that, how the company coped, what is his outlook on the future of the leadership development industry in general and in Blanchard in particular. Super interesting, very fun guy, very enthusiastic. So let's dive right into the conversation with Scott Blanchard. A very warm welcome, Scott Blanchard. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here this morning. Scott, everybody, when they hear the name Blanchard, they go like, wait a second, wait a second. I know this name. So who are you? What do you do? Um, so I'm Scott Blanchard, and I'm, uh, I guess I grew up as the son of the one-minute manager. So my father is, is Ken Blanchard, who um, is a guru and an author and in the leadership space. Um, and uh, yeah, so he, he's, so that's always defined my life professionally, really, um, because that book came out, the one my manager came out when I was in high school. So it's been a long time that he's been uh, in the forefront in the leadership space. And then I, uh, I joined the company in, in 93 and, I, and now I'm president of the, the Ken Blanchard company. So it's a business that my parents and some colleagues from the University of Mass Massachusetts started in 1979. 1979. I was 10 years old at that time. Uh, so that's <laughs> really a long time ago. Um, so tell us a little bit about the dimensions of Blanchard, maybe like number of people, where do you work, which which clients do you serve, that kind of thing, please. So we're in the uh, leadership development and talent development space. Uh, we have about just about 300 um, employees that work for our our company. Plus, we have global partners in about twenty five countries, and um, we're about sixty five million in revenue. So we've been uh, we've been in the leadership development space for for a long time. Primarily, we work with um, with large uh, firms directly, large uh, multinational firms or large domestic, uh, mostly corporations or or large entities. And then we also have a whole network of. Uh, partners and and affiliates that sell into the smaller 
uh, companies, smaller markets, and also um, abroad. So we kind of cover the whole base through the direct and indirect means. What we primarily do is we bring together <clears throat> great professionals, people that are dedicated to the craft of developing leadership with just incredible content. We've been developing, um, you know, and modularizing, you know, incredible leadership development content for for years and years and years prolifically. And then uh, we combine that with really powerful learning experiences, uh, which today are often supported um, by by technology. They're human driven, but they're definitely supported by technology. So, um, and we help organizations improve their leadership capacity from top to bottom and from side to side. And we have the honor to be part of that network since two years, and we're still getting into the fold. We attended a conference that your company generously hosted in Athens. And uh, what I was amazed to see the the amount of different cultures, the amount of different people of global partners mm -hmm. there, and also their tenors of like 30 years with Blanchard. So it's a long lasting global relationship and, and people who are working together for a long period of time. That's really amazing. It, it you know, it's a it's a labor of love, this business. Um, and it's a you know it's a going business as well, and there's a lot of people that have entered the space. But fundamentally, it's about helping you know leaders become great, and so it's a craft um, that is at the center of our you know of our of our business. And um, and we've we've stayed uh, privately held um, all this time. We're a family business, second generation, so I'm the second generation um, leader. And um, and so many of our partners have been with us, as you mentioned, for for years, but as my mother always said, and it was really my mom who built the business more than my father. My dad wrote and spoke, but my mother was the one that had the vision for and, and really built the business with my with my uncle Tom. She always says the people that join um, Blanchard um, are cause motivated, that they're really you know interested in and are driven by um, you know helping leaders become you know more effective and also um, create deeper senses of loyalty and trust with their people. Absolutely. And Scott, let's let's look at the last couple of years. Um, also, in the time that you became president, um, you once said you never wanted to become president and, you know, then it happened. And then a lot of things changed. The leadership development industry got disrupted. Things uh, that COVID came, things became digital. Some of the players in the market simply got dismantled. They got caught aback. Um, you guys, you you were prepared. It looked you were prepared. You were very quick. You were agile in adjusting. You brought a lot of digital uh, virtual content but a very high quality. Maybe can you walk us through what happened since you became president? Yeah, well, it, first thing, it's true that I never, you know, really expected nor wanted this, this role. And that was primarily because I was <clears throat> client facing. I worked with clients as a as a speaker, as a consultant, I started our coaching business with my with my wife, and I've been involved in our product development for thirteen or fourteen years. And so I've always been on the on the client side. Um, and uh, and it's funny on my on my tombstone, it will probably say something like he was always or often too early. So we have been uh, we've been investing in in technology for a long time, and it was back in the mid nineties. Um, when I was just a few years in the business working full time as a trainer, when I really, you know, saw and envisioned and was actually scared of the power 
of the internet and what it was going to do to um, e-learning, which had been happening at that point, but it wasn't powered by by the internet. And I was, um, you know, I was really worried about what, how we were going to be involved as things move to a more digital, you know, format. So, um, I mean, unfortunately, and fortunately, it took a good twenty-five or twenty-eight years for it to come to fruition. But but when we hit COVID, when COVID hit, we were probably doing 15 to 20% of our training was delivered virtually. Every single program we had had virtual designs. We were very, very good at it. And we were working with a lot of multinational companies that were um, that were leveraging that technology quite well. And then when COVID hit and everything shut down, we converted from you know about 300 virtual sessions a year and about 5,000 training days, you know, days on site, um, to we didn't do a single training day for 18 months. And uh, I think in 2020, we did about 9,500 virtual days. And in 2021, we we breached that. We did about 15,000. And this year, we're on pace to do, you know, another 15,000 um, as well. So everything changed. And so the biggest thing that happened with COVID was um, – in the past, we were prepared for the big shift, but what happened is is the world, the world shifted, and the a lot of the companies they had no choice um, but to move towards using Zoom and other um, you know virtual and distributed technologies. And there were some companies that really said, "Nope, we're face to face people. We're not gonna we're not gonna do that." And then as the months wore on. I think the people in in leadership development understood two things. One is people really need to be brought together and our leaders are really challenged. And if we don't start doing something that leverages technology, we're going to probably be out of a job. And so even the reluctant um, move towards technology in uh, in late 2020 and all the way through 2021 and where we're sitting now is it's it's 80 percent delivered virtually. Um, or digitally, and about twenty percent of the of the classroom is coming back. But the biggest change is the customers changed. Um, it the the customers changed in terms of their adoption of technology, and then even today, there's so many people that aren't coming to the office full time that that change that's that that shift from people working from home um, has I think changed the the delivery modality forever. So uh, so here we sit now with. You know, some virtual, I mean, a lot of virtual going on and some classroom going on. Um, but then the other interesting thing is because of this um, of this pandemic and also because of the this period that we're in with with high high inflation, um, uncertainty, certainly in Europe, um, a very tight labor market still. Um, and kind of the worry about maybe recession. Um that there are a lot of businesses that are still heavily investing in developing their leaders right now. And most of it is happening over time, spread out with some degree of interactive, um, you know, connection, getting together, but a lot of leveraging, you know, technology. We talk about human driven experiences that leverage technology. And a lot of your competitors or the players in the market, for example, Center for Creative Leadership, they got hit really hard, really bad. They had to let go of probably more than 50% of their workforce. I'm not sure 
to which degree you can share that or want to share that with us. But how did you cope in terms of the company? How how much did you cut a bench or needed to cut a bench or could you keep all the people? What was your going concern there as a family business? Yeah. Well, it was very interesting when I when I took this job um, that sort of happened, you know, quickly. Um, the president that was running our company that I had hired back in 2001, um, he uh, he left. Um, he was hired away in, in the first week of December, and um, and my family asked me if I would take over as president starting January one. And so I had a very short period of time to kind of prepare and reflect for it. And as we started that year. Um, before the COVID, you know, pandemic had really kind of even emerged, there was just some rumblings from what was happening, you know, over in in uh, parts of China. Um, we were talking about the shift that we needed to make because when we came into the pandemic, we we were really in a period of time where you know the growth was sort of up and down over the previous ten years, and uh, and a lot of that was um, we felt like was because we were focused too much on programs. And on products, and not enough on experiences. Um, so we started that that messaging, and we had we had brought in some really great leaders from, you know, from outside. And we were I, I was beginning to to really think heavily about this this transition that we were going to make, um, or like an evolution, um, you know, towards the technology that was becoming more and more ubiquitous, really. And then when the pandemic, you know, hit, um, you know, the first thing was everybody started delaying or deferring or canceling training sessions, you know, straight away. And uh, February, March, April, May are very busy in this industry every single year, especially in the United States, because it's it's sort of the period of time uh, after the beginning of the year when we a lot of the energy is spent on developing leaders before we get into the summer months. And um, our revenue dropped like a, like a rock. We, we uh, in the second quarter of 2020, you know, the revenue dropped by, um, we were 50% of our uh, our goal and even lower from the, compared to the revenue from, from last year. And so we were really in deep trouble. Um, interestingly, we we were able to apply for support from the federal government in the United States. And so at the end of Q2, we, we actually got a, um, you know, we got a significant payment. And one of the things that, that required was that we we kind of hold on for that that quarter, um, and uh, but we took some strong measures. We we did um, pay cuts and we cut every every expense that we could because um, you know we're a privately held firm and we didn't really have we just don't have the resources that we can you know tap into forever. Um, and then by the end of of that quarter, we we knew that um, that we we in the industry were you know were in trouble. So we we actually did some very um, tricky things. We uh, we offered a, a, pro a program for any of our long-term associates who wanted to to choose to leave, and we paid them a, a nice severance. And then we also um, put some people on furlough, um, you know, like a temporary uh, stoppage of work. And uh, and then we watched what was happening over the over the summer. And then by the time we got to the uh, the third quarter of the year, despite the, the help that we got from the government, we were still um, you know, losing money. So we actually made some permanent um, headcount reductions. And net net, um, we went down about 23% in uh, in people inside of our company. And it was a very, very painful thing. I, I you know, I, I was involved in every single 
one of those, I signed every single, um, you know, separation release form. And, uh, and some of the people that left um, were people that had joined the company when I was in high school or college. Um, you know, many, many 30 year people, you know, accepted the, the opportunity to leave. And, um, but we really felt like it was, it was essential to do that. And one of the things that I, I made sure that I did during the year is I really got in front of the communication and we, I wrote an email to the, everybody in the company for about two and a half years straight. Um, and my goal was to make sure that nobody was surprised and nobody misunderstood or didn't 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 clearly understand what we were doing and why it was necessary. And I always said that that liking it was optional, but I didn't want anybody to be surprised, and I didn't want anybody to to not understand kind of what we were we were up against. And so that was kind of the tale of that of that year. Near the end of the year, we started to see some, you know, some revenue come back, and we um, you know we finished. 2020 and we survived and that was the biggest goal was to survive and to not let um losses and uh you know and debt get us to a position where the company was not viable that must have been a really rough start of your presidency i mean yeah it was very it was very challenging it was um you know and it was very it was hard it was hard for our, our family but uh, but ultimately i mean ironically i was probably the right one for the you know, for the job, um, you know, because I, I of all the different intelligences, tactical was pretty high for me. So I, I really felt like we needed to, you know, we needed to make sure that we didn't, you know, unduly, you know, suffer or or ruin our future because we didn't make the challenging decisions that that occurred during that, you know, during that time. And uh, and there was a lot of good things for the for the people that left. There was a lot of support from our government financially, and um, one of the things that my wife always says is, you know, it, we're very lucky in our industry because, uh, you know, nobody dies in training and development, you know, in leadership development. So it's it's a, uh, so we, we survived that year and um, and we went into the next year very carefully, um, you know, with the reduced headcount, we committed to to uh, just staying the course and and to not, you know, adding any headcount until business came back and we got to a position where we were, you know, generating profitability again. And so 2021 was a really interesting year because, um, you know, the revenue came, started to come back, the customers came back, but they came back very differently. Mm -hmm. um, it's really different to manage, um, you know, 12 or 13,000 virtual sessions than managing, um, you know, face-to-face -face sessions. We were leveraging a lot of technology. We're doing a lot of learning, learning journeys, which is, you know, spread out over time using content from multiple programs into an experience that's designed specifically for, you know, a population of people. And it worked. And so interestingly, in 2021, um, our revenue got back to the level that it exceeded the revenue that we had in 2019. So we had a full, you know, recovery at the top line. Um, but we did so with uh, leveraging technology much more than we did before. And the story that I talk about is is when my parents started the business kind of on Jim Collins, um, you know, idea is that this, this flywheel started. And the flywheel was this flywheel around physical training events supported with printed training materials that were put into a box and sent to participants. And so this this started, and, and it never it never stopped all the years as we went through, you know, the the eighties and the nineties, and and even even when 
9-11 occurred, you know, it slowed down a bit for a few weeks, but it really kept rolling. And then all the way through the Great Recession in 2000, you know, uh, end of 2008 into 2009, 2010, it slowed, but it never really stopped. And so this flywheel kept going. And, and Collins always talked about the momentum of the flywheel is so important because it's not only our, our the momentum we have, but it's also the momentum of the customers, you know, choosing and um, to work with us. And and many customers, you just continue. And then when when the COVID hit, the flywheel stopped and it just stopped dead. And so one of the things that we, we then did is we pivoted towards virtual delivery. And one of the things that we real, realized is the flywheel of the delivery method did not define our business because our, our purpose and our our vision is to enable leaders to be magnificent, to lead their people to produce great results, but also to create deep levels of trust and satisfaction and, you know, and loyalty. And so we were still doing that. And so the ultimate purpose, our ultimate reason for being here was still was still valid. But what we've done is we've we've started a a digital flywheel, if you will. And now both sides of our business, the traditional business and the new side are both served um, by this uh, this capacity that was really developed through COVID. And talking about the flywheel, I like this metaphor. So um, when you think of Blanchard, many people think situational leadership or SL2, uh, as it's called within Blanchard. Um, and But there's many more products that are not so well known that are mm -hmm. actually fairly new, whilst Situation and leadership is is an you know a, a model that is from the eighties I believe right or nineties maybe um, so how do you innovate how do you make sure that this um, traditional model is not set in stone and it's the you know orthodoxly yeah. the only thing that you have but how do you innovate? Well, so what's interesting about SL two um, is I mean interestingly it was developed. Originally, a situational leadership with my father and Dr. Paul Hersey in 1969 when I was four. So it's been around for a long time. And then in 1984, situational leadership two, or what we now refer to as SL2, was was created as a uh, like a second version based on some work and some some of my father's beliefs that were separate and distinct from um, the original work that he and Paul did. And so we we basically coexisted for a long time sharing a trademark um, under situational leadership and uh, and so that program has been around for a long time and what we've done over over and when you have something that works so well the first question is why does it work well and I think the reason it works so well is because it was so far ahead of its time because it was based on three things one is that that leadership is a partnership and that when you work with people it's about doing things with them rather than to them and so the whole model is designed around you know, getting clear on what the employee needs and then the manager pairing what the employee needs with their leadership style. Um, and then, then then the second thing is it's a it's a model around evolution, you know, that if I start here, I, I move through an experience that's predictable or we call the development level continuum. So it's developmental in nature, meaning that I change the way that I work, you know, with people, you know, over time. Um, and then the third piece about the model, which is probably why it's so powerful, is that it's a, it creates a common approach and a common language. So it has been used by companies for for decades, um, really since the early 70s, as a like a common language for leadership within the within the organization. And it's also very powerful because it's 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 referred to as one of the it's probably the top one in terms of the the category of transfer transactional leadership. 
And so what it's designed is to help me um, do a better job of having a good conversation right now in this moment as, as different from, you know, transformational leadership. Um, and so, so situational leadership has been dominant for our business for a long time, or as we now we refer to as SL2, we we, we made a change um, a few years ago, which we can talk about later, but, but SL2 has been, you know, the dominant for us and uh, it represented probably 75% of our revenue before, before COVID hit. And on the traditional side of the business, it's still, it still dominates. And I define the traditional traditional business as program centered custom products or off the shelf products, which are things that we keep in, in inventory that are delivered, you know, through virtual or face-to-face means. Um, as we've shifted towards the, our newer um, business where it's, it's, we create learning journeys that are spread out over time, virtual and live events in there, what we're doing is we're typically using multiple pieces of, of content over time. Um, and so most of our learning journeys have situational leadership wrestle to inside of them. Um, but they don't represent all of it because we add other things like building trust, um, conversational capacity, which is an amazing uh, framework that helps people um, get everybody in the room focused on the sweet spot where there's a balance between candor and curiosity. So it's a skill set that can drive people towards a conversation where people lean in versus lean out. Um, we also teach some very powerful communication skills again and again um, that really come from our coaching essentials program. Um, and then we're also able to to mix in or kind of integrate the content um, that our clients, you know, have invested in, or they also want to have part of this this leadership experience. And so, if if you will, that this new world has enabled us to um, have participants that complete programs, and they come out and they're speaking about multiple frameworks. Um, if you think about a tool belt, they'll have a tool belt, a management tool belt with six or seven tools that they can actually reach into depending on what's what's happening and so we're we're very excited about it because of course SL2 is still strongly featured but the other things that we've been developing over over time those things are being used um you know much more much more frequently and one of the things that we were proud of before um before covid is is 92% of the people that went through one of our courses only did one course you know, and about eighty percent of the time, it was it was SL two, and so what we we weren't doing because of, for various reasons, is is people weren't availing themselves, organizations weren't availing themselves, of the other really powerful content that we have. And now that we've been mixing it into these experiences, it's making a big it's making a big difference. So, um, yeah, so we're sitting here with sort of like a traditional side of the business which we love, and we have program buyers, and they'll continue to buy programs, and it's a wonderful. Medium, but we have a lot of organizations where they're looking for more of a bespoke solution or a solution that's 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 geared to the specific needs of each layer of their leadership. And in that case, we're able to um, basically, you know, pull together all the the, the content in a way uh, typically spread out over time, where it creates, I think, a more a more compelling value proposition for each manager. So it's been it's been an interesting and really fun you know, kind of shift. And so now these two sides of the business are are really, uh, are both thriving. And there's a third dimension to it, part of the innovation that you're doing, which is integrating coaching into leadership programs. And uh, you and your wife, Madeline, you have been very far-sighted in this. At one point, you created the URL 
www.coaching.com, which I think everybody in the market envies you about. Uh, um, so how did how did coaching come up? Uh, was it taken seriously all the time? And how did it get integrated into the mainstream flywheel of Blanchard? Yeah. Well, so interesting on the theme of he's often, you know, too early is uh, we started coaching.com as a separate um, business as a small startup in um, in 2000. And um, and we happened upon that URL back then. And then we ran that business separately, you know, for a couple of years. And then we ultimately integrated it into into Blanchard because we were a bit a bit too early. But we've been delivering coaching that's very consistent, very scalable um, for, yeah, since 2000. Um, we've coached probably 45 or 50,000 leaders specifically, um, mostly in um, in cohorts. You know, so people are coached individually, but they're part of a, a group of leaders going through a leadership development program or a high potential program or an executive development program. And everybody's receiving coaching as as part of that. Um, and interestingly, when we first started it, one of the things that we had to prove was that coaching on the phone was effective because the key to, to delivering coaching at any sort of scale was, was leveraging, you know, the phone so that the coach didn't have to, you know, get in their car or take an airplane to sit down with the executive, wait there, and then go in there and have their coaching session. And, um, and so we proved it. We, we did a lot of measurement to show that actually coaching over the phone, um, you know, has, is works better than coaching face-to-face -face for a bunch of different reasons. With high-end, uh, with very senior coaching um, engagements, we, we typically will have the coach meet the executive in person at some point during that three- to six-month period, um, just once, you know, sometimes twice. But most of the time, it's a, uh, it's a phone call. Um, because the executive can can pick up the phone, you know, for go for their scheduled hour, and they can use the coaching for fifty nine minutes of that hour, um, and um, and so it's, it's worked very well. Well, so that was kind of the beginning. Um, <laughs> I guarantee you that we built the first coach management system because we uh, we launched it in the uh, beginning of two thousand one, um, and now you know the whole coaching world is sort of like caught up, you know, to us. So we've been delivering coaching to support learning for. Um, you know, for 21 years. Right now, um, it's tightly integrated into these um, learning journeys, especially the higher you go, you know, in organizations. And we're also doing um, and have gotten very good at doing um, group coaching, you know, so so a small number of people together with a coach, typically facilitating a dialogue around something that's that's really useful to talk about within a, within a team or a group setting. Uh, for example, we're doing a lot of um, group coaching around um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and getting leaders together to talk about that issue, their personal experience with it, and and have them engage in dialogue so they can be more comfortable with not only you know DEI generally, but also with the role that is special for the leader, because the leader is placed in a very specific and a very special role with regard to creating an inclusive environment. And because the leader sits in a position of, uh, of power, of, you know, a position power, um, it is the leader that has to reach um, and create bridges and create opportunities within their team 
um, especially for people that don't have as much privilege as they do. And so we're really, really heavily focused on on that. And it works great in a in a group, you know, coaching setting. Um, and so whenever executives really are coming together around a common issue, um, the the group um coaching process works works really well. So uh, yeah, so coaching's been a big, big part of what we uh, of what we do for for a long time. Of course, coaching has exploded sort of around us. You know, with a lot of venture-backed firms, and so coaching has arrived, if you will. Um, I think the thing that's our distinction now is that we, um, our leaders, I mean, our coaches, um, have developed expertise in the field of leadership, and um, and coaching is a great technology, but but also understanding what leadership is and what it isn't, and how to actually, um, you know, coach somebody with that with that focus you know, is, is really, really important. So that's how we distinguish ourselves more than anybody now. And, and, and our coaches are also working with um, some of the best leadership content. So sometimes they're actually referring back specifically to pieces that, that, uh, that managers or leaders have already learned through a training program. That makes a lot of sense. And Scott, what I also find amazing is the business model that you have developed. I mean, uh, we know other US-based companies where it's very much our way is the way for the entire world and we just roll it out you know no questions asked you have and embarked into a localization strategy you have i think over 30 if the numbers or 20 uh, international partners that represent blanchard entirely or at least to a part it really gets the feeling that there's a sort of sensitivity for cultures in different places um was that a was this a a, a conscious journey was that a decision to make, or did that simply evolve over time? Well, I think probably you know you can always point back and say something intentional, but I but I think ultimately um, we followed our customers and we followed the the practitioners that were that loved you know our our content, and so um, over thirty years ago. Uh, my my parents and the the leaders at that time in the business developed the first uh, relationships with uh, what we refer to now as global partners, which is which is relationships with people that actually sell and represent our content, you know, in their specific countries. And then as well, this is really goes on really when I first joined the company, we started working with multinational companies who have operations around the world, and so we started to work really heavily on um, on translation you know, and localization um, in the beginning because we had to. And now at this point, it's it's a it's a really driven, you know, driven strength for us. So, um, I mean, we, we have one one client um, where we've actually translated their program into, you know, 24 different languages. Um, wow. You know, we have seven languages that we go to on a regular basis. And we have uh, we have assets that are translated into probably 14 or 15 languages on a regular basis but we uh, we've been able to do that and the only way to really translate things appropriately is to create the base program so that it can be translated and and localized and so we've had to you know step away from things that we used to use which is acronyms based on um you know american english you know that it's really hard to you know to translate those and also to make sure that that we're not representing you know issues that are that are wholly you know centered in North America, that they're more um, able to be kind of contextualized for the 
for the entire world. And then we we had a, a vendor who's now a direct employee of ours, um, and we we have we do translations um, as a first thought rather than as a last thought, and we do them um, internally. But then we also have a really strong ne- network of people that help us around the world translate and localize our materials. Plus our partners, you know, our partners are the ones that also they live in their countries and they're, and they're able to, um, to further kind of enhance the, the translations and the, and the localizations. And so when I say that it's a labor of love, it is because it's, it's really, it's really tricky and it's really complicated. And it's, there's a high standard um, to make sure that the materials are, are translated and localized, you know, properly um, as, as an example, um, this new program, that we've developed called Courageous Inclusion. Um, we're just releasing it. Um, we embraced and we worked with a lot of our, our global partners to help um, to get feedback in the early stages during Alpha and Beta to make sure that the the issues and the program around DEI was strong enough that it, you know, it, it connected to people around the world, but that it wasn't reflective just of, of, of fundamental differences that are more present here, you know, in North America. Um, you know, here presently in North America, a lot of it is based on um, people's race or their or their country of origin. And then there's a lot of uh, focus and energy on um, uh, on identity. Um, and and those are the kind of the two predominant things. But they're different around the world. And they're and they're even differing here, you know, in the States as time goes by. And so this program is 100 percent geared towards help helping identify what are those things that are beneath the surface may be sitting under the table that are that are keeping people from showing up 100%, you know, as human beings. And um, and what's the leader's role to help make sure that we're, we're, we're creating a safe space where everybody can put everything on the table so that we can know and see each other completely rather than just, just through those lenses that people prefer to bring, you know, into work. So it's, it's been a big, it's been a big effort, um, you know, over time. And, and I wouldn't say, 15 years ago that it was a driven strength, but now we really feel like it is a, it's probably one of our strongest, um, you know, traits and sets of capabilities. Hi there. Sorry to interrupt, but this is a special message to you. Who do you think needs to know about our podcast leaders talk? Who needs to listen to this episode? Please forward this, uh, the link to this podcast to the people, please make notes of the names right now. Who comes to mind? Please help us spread the word. Please help us increase our follower base. And the the best recipe for that is a mouth-to-mouth kind of spread the word. So please help us with that. And now back to the uh, very interesting conversation with Scott Blanchard. Absolutely, I can fully echo that. And, And Scott, I would like to go back into back into time, back into uh, your youth. You're right now sitting north of San Diego, I suppose, right? Uh, yeah. Where you grew up, uh, where your father was teaching at the university. I think he was a professor for 14 years, uh, developed the work, uh, the models. Um, he's you know, still in the business being chief spiritual officer. I think he's 84 right now. Is that true? He's a, uh, he'll be 84 in a couple months. He's 83. Yeah. 83. Yeah. So yeah. how was it growing up in such a family where it was all about leadership, about theory, about, you know, being self-determined? I mean, 
can you give us an idea how that was and what kind of a kid were you? Yeah, it's funny. So many people have asked me, like, so what was that like <laughs> to grow up as the as the son of the one minute manager? And um, I mean, simply, it was cool and it was weird um, as I as I reflect, because um, my parents uh, were entrepreneurs and they built this business you know, together with partners from the university when I was in my teen years. And before that, um, I had kind of an idyllic um, early childhood. We lived in Amherst, Massachusetts. My father was a tenured professor at the University of Massachusetts. Um, Amherst is a beautiful college town in the Northeast. It's a very, you know, it's a very progressive little enclave inside of a very progressive state. And, uh, you know, and I grew up playing you know, hockey on the pond behind behind my house and baseball on the field and, you know, basically riding my bike around as I saw fit. And I just had this amazing, you know, childhood and we skied and and everything. And then uh, and then my father got a sabbatical uh, leave. So he, he was able to leave the university for one year with with pay. And he moved we moved to California for one year. Um, and his purpose was to write a book with Paul Hersey on situational leadership applied to parenting. And it became it's called the family game. And so we we moved out here um, for one year. And um, California in the 70s was miraculous. I mean, San Diego, where I sit right now, we've got about 3.5 million people in San Diego. And at that point, there was about 350,000 people in the entire city. So it was a small town, beautiful weather. And interestingly, the the social environment and the like the economic environment were really attractive to my parents. The taxes were very low. The cost of living was reasonable. And my father always said, um, you know, because he had very progressive ideas. He got out here and he started sharing his ideas with with business leaders. Um, they were like, wow, that sounds really interesting. You know, let's try it. <laughs> and he felt like back east, Whenever he came up with a new idea, people were like, why? You know, they're questioning the idea. And out West, they were like, why not? Let's try it. And so he really found a very receptive environment out here. And um, and so, you know, much to my chagrin, they ended up, um, we ended up staying. And so they never went back to the university. We never went back and lived in Massachusetts again. And then so as a kid, I was now living in San Diego, which was had a lot of great features, but I lost a lot of the things that I loved about being part of that about small town. I was sort of like, you know, removed from my, from my roots. Um, and, but it was, it was really a great time. So we actually, um, uh, you know, I, I kind of grew up here from sixth grade, you know, through high school, you know, in San Diego. And it was during that, that time that my father and Paul Hersey worked together for a couple of years. Um, and they, they had a business that was called the center for leadership studies. And then in 1979, um, my parents split away and they started the uh, Blanchard Training and Development, which is the, you know, the the company that's the predecessor to the Ken Blanchard companies and um, started the business as a seminar company. And so it was very interesting to watch my parents go from, um, you know, my father working in a university as a tenured professor to the two of them being partners together in the development of a new business that they really started without any you know, they didn't invest any capital in the business. They just started it as a seminar company. And as they achieved success over time, they just reinvested the profitability to begin to create the uh, the business. 
Um, so it was it was really interesting time. The reason it was interesting also as a kid is is my, you know, I was a red-blooded American kid, you know, and I loved sports and I loved, you know, to to fish and I loved to, you know, just a very active, you know, kid. And I and I found myself in trouble a lot, um, as as happens many times with young young boys. And it was so different in my house. Um, kind of why it was weird is is whenever I I got in any kind of trouble, um, you know, the punishment was was right into the kitchen, sitting at the table to talk about it. And uh, the question was always, you know, why is your behavior incongruent with the stated family values? <laughs> you know, the values that have been determined, you know, during a family offsite, and they were on the wall, like literally. And so um, there was a lot of conversations around intention versus impact. And my parents are both idealists. And so to them, everything had meaning. You know, so if I did something like even you know, step on a bug. It was the conversation was about, you know, that that was a, you know, that was a sentient being and and I made the choice to end its life and, you know, things like that. Um, or if I got in trouble being disruptive in class, it wasn't just about the disruption, but it was about that I was actually getting in the way and robbing those kids from, from learning because I was taking the time away from the teacher um, and they were disciplining instead of teaching. So it was a very interesting set of, uh, you know, conversations that both my sister and I had that were always referencing the degree that our our behavior was congruent with the values that we held important. That's amazing. So I mean, interesting. Yeah, I can imagine. We got four kids. And if we start, my wife is a coach as well. If we start asking them coaching questions, they just roll their eyes and say, no coaching at home, please. So there is a lot of pushback. Was there any sort of rebellion against that? Oh, there was a lot of eye rolling and things like that. I mean, the, the it was so funny because, um, uh, and I've talked to people whose parents are in our field. I've talked to parents, to kids whose parents were professors or um, therapists, you know, and, and there's always this time when the parents go into like therapist voice or coach voice, you know, and they stop being parent and then they start asking coaching questions, you know, that sort of sort of thing. And so uh, after a while, you know, the kids can sort of like figure it out. But it, but if you but I think it was still very powerful for me because so much of it was around, you know, the exploration of of what was behind our behavior. And as a result, um, you really can't go back to to just not interpreting um, the difference between intent, you know, and impact. And there was a famous uh, my parents tell the story one time that we my sister and I came in, you know, one day and uh, my parents were there but with a bunch of their associates and they were doing, um, you know, some kind of a thing in the 70s where they were all um, like, uh, like laying on the floor, like screaming and getting like their, their, their emotions out. You know, it was some, some form of, I'm not sure it was rebirthing, but some sort of like this idea about getting it out. And we, and we, we came in with a couple of friends and the friends are like, what's going on? We're like, oh. That's just my parents. They're kind of upstairs, you know. And, and so um, it was a very, uh, you know, it was an interesting time. It was also the 70s, you know. And so in the 70s, there was a lot of <clears throat> really interesting stuff kind of going on. But but ultimately, it was a very cool thing. The other one thing I'll say is, is I did also get an interesting model. Is my father was always busy. He was traveling. He was running around. And my, and my father and my mother really was the, you know, the roots and the stability within our house. But she was also the one as I mentioned before, that actually held the reins and built the business and I think had the vision for the company that we've become. 
you know, and I think if it was left to my father alone, he would have continued to write and to research and to speak, but I don't believe that he would have built a, a business like we have today. So that was the the interesting thing. Um, you know, they always say sometimes that it's a behind every great man is a great woman. And, and in my dad's case, it's sort of beside this great man is an amazing woman who built a business um, that that is enduring and is now, you know, 40, almost 44 years old. So, uh, so my mom is just just an amazing person. So their partnership and watching the two of them together has been um, really inspiring as well for for not only me but for everybody in our company. Absolutely, absolutely. And so when I look back into my childhood, I mean, my parents were simple people. My father was a soldier. My uh, my mom was working as a secretary. And I pretty early in my puberty, I think, had the feeling. I can't learn anything from you guys anymore. I need to, you know, move out because I'm so far advanced, that kind of thing. When you grow up as somebody, and obviously that wasn't true because I could learn a lot of them, but, I, you know, I still had to figure it out. When you grow up with somebody that is like super successful, being a, a scholar, being a researcher, a writer, uh, a businesswoman, somebody who is an entrepreneur, how do you find your way? How do you, how do you find your own place in life? Yeah. Well, it's a very good question. I, uh, you know, I didn't know I wasn't attracted to their business at all. I thought it was very, um, you know, abstract. Um, and, um, you know, and they were sort of revolutionaries to a certain degree. And and so I ended up being in the, uh, you know, having a big interest in the in the restaurant business where I worked very early. I went to, to university for uh, food and beverage at the Hotel School of Cornell. And so I had a very different, you know, plan you know, for my, for my career. And I, and I worked, you know, in that, in that field until I was 28. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, I was about 26 or 27 that I began to really realize, and I saw my future in the, in the hotel and restaurant industry. And, and I really realized that something my parents had were doing and what they were working on was, was very special and it took me quite a while to, to really see that. And, and what caused me to see that was working for some some amazing leaders and working for some leaders that literally drove me out of that business. And so I was really, really inspired by a guy named uh, Robert Small. He was one of the best hoteliers in the world. And, uh, and I was really turned off by a couple other people that I, you know, that I worked with. Um, and then the biggest thing that I realized in that industry is um, you can only really succeed in the hospitality industry if you come to peace with the idea that when other people are playing or staying with you, you work. And then when, um, you know, when they are working, then you can take your time to play. And so the holidays in that space mean that you're serving guests. And then the holidays that you take when you're running that industry are occurring when people go back to work. And, uh, and so I, I really, you know, I got a really strong sense of that. And um, and I one of my leaders one of, that I worked with, you know, said at one point when I complained about working on a holiday, and he said, you know, if that's an issue for you, then, you know, you probably need to to look at, you know, your, your mindset because, you know, it's an amazing industry, but you have to realize that those are holidays for those people. We take our time at other times. And if you have a big issue with that, then you probably ought to, you know, look elsewhere. <laughs> and I think he was trying to, talk me into it. But what ended up happening 
was I looked elsewhere, you know, and I and I look back to what my uh, my family business was. So I didn't join the company till till I was 28. Um, and then I went back to graduate school for uh, uh, a degree in, in organization development. And I actually learned from a lot of the people that my that were peers of my parents in the field. Um, and so I was able to go back um, and really get kind of a deeper grounding in um, in our field. And I really fell in love with it in probably a different way than my than my father, but much more of, of a kind of a hands-on and practical way. And when you started going into the hospitality industry, did you feel that were your parents like totally cool with it or were they saying, hmm, we're not sure as long as you're happy, but actually we want something else for you? How How free did you feel? The the first few years were very interesting. I really felt, um, I mean, they welcomed me. That was the first first thing. My uncle had been in the business um, for about seven years before that. Um, he's my mom's um, younger brother by 18 years. So he was in a general management role. Um, and my sister had been in the business since she got out of college. I was the third one, you know, to join. Um, and, um, but I had, it took me, probably the first five or six years, I really had to figure out my own identity within the company and within the field because I was in the shadow of my father. Um, and it was, a, that was kind of a big issue for not so much for him, but for, you know, but for me, because um, every, and it still is true to today, I've never addressed really a group of, of certainly uh, practitioners in our space coaches or facilitators or consultants where I'm not, where people don't know my father before I get, as soon as they see my name. So every time they come in, it's like, here comes Blanchard. I wonder if that's son of or brother of or, or whatever. So I'm always kind of working within that, that shadow a little bit. And then I'm distinctly different from my father. And so I needed to figure out how to stand up on my own two feet and be my own self and be distinctly, you know, different from, you know, from him. And, um, one of one person made a characterization a while ago is is maybe years ago is that with my father you know you really get this sense that everything comes right from his heart um and they said with you it really feels like everything comes from your gut um you know so it's much more about much more of kind of the the essence of of who I am and a lot of that is represented in kind of who I am it's much more visceral um you know, and and less heart centered or or kind of intellectual. And you also worked a lot on yourself. It seems like reflecting. I know that you're a big fan of uh, social neuroscience or self determination theory. So where you kind yeah. of define your own uh, destiny, uh, where you take your own life into your own hands. So how did how did that come about? Yeah, so so that was a. It's been an interesting journey because I, I, um, my parents gave me the gift of making me go to a seminar back in the like 1981 or or so. Um, it was called Est, and it was a big thing of the 70s. And they were worried about how I was behaving, and they and they thought that I was kind of playing the victim. You know that I wasn't taking full responsibility for my myself and for my actions. And so I went through this seminar, and I. I sort of sat there a bit like like this, but I watched and I listened and I and I basically realized that at that point, um, and it was based on self determination theory is is that we reap what we sow. Ultimately, is that everything that we 
we get out of our life comes from as a reaction to what we put into it. And so I, I just got this really deep sense that I have control over my own destiny and uh, or my own outcomes. And that if I um, and I just I just got a very strong you know sense of that. And so it's it's part of of who I am. It's part of who I am as a leader. I, I believe that you can't kind of outrun um, you know the efforts that you put in. And um, and so I, I've kind of run my life ever ever since then. So what it what it means you know, to me is that I always, even if something happens that I don't like, um, it's much better for me to take responsibility for um, for dealing with it than to blame other people or to blame the circumstances um, or to um, blame the fates, you know, if, if you will. Um, so it's it's been a very important, you know, thing for me. And so as such, um, you know, it'd be easy to sit around and and, and lament or say, wow, you know, I'm never going to get out of my father's shadow. And what, how can I figure that out? Maybe I should go elsewhere. And I think the issue with that is that there's a wonderful, you know, opportunity. And there was a reason that I was dropped into, into this life with these parents, with this being who I am. And so what I, what I decided to do was to be crystal clear about how I'm, you know, distinctly different from my father, but also to let people know that I'm, I'm a follower of his as well. I love his passion. I love the work. I think that he's in fundamental you know, a, a, I feel like he was, he developed a revolutionary points of view on the way that people, you know, work and thrive. And these crazy ideas that these professors developed in the 60s and 70s have now become, you know, the foundation for, you know, the truth about what works best with human beings. And so that's been the interesting thing. And I just had to think with my father the other day. And uh, he did a video for doing next week. And we talked about like these three things that are so important to him that he's been talking about for decades, but they're really important now. And one of them is um, that leadership is something you do with people, not to people, right? Um, that that being a leader is about sitting side by side and it's it's about helping people succeed by the way that you interact, not something that you just do to people, you know, as if they're your your charges. And it's a really interesting thing. And the second one that's probably his most famous is it's the leader's role to emphasize the positive, you know, to praise people when they're doing things right and to and to build on people's strengths and to and to show people what you want and to emphasize the positive. And you can deal with the things that are that are the behaviors that aren't working, but it's really to emphasize the positive. And then the third one um, is favorite is um, love is the answer, you know, what's the question? And what's interesting in the research is all of those things have, have become really, really true. Accenting the positive works much more effectively from a neuroscience standpoint, mm -hmm. because what it does is it enables people to develop, um, you know, cortisol, um, excuse me, um, a dopamine, you know, they, they secrete dopamine and, and they, and it, and they, it, it creates positive, um, dynamics in their brain and enables the frontal cortex to stay in the game much longer. And then when we do things that are not cooperative or fear-based, then what it does is it triggers adrenaline and uh, and cortisol, which causes the frontal cortex to shut off. And it drives people back into their lizard brain where it's fight, flight, freeze, or appease. So it's so interesting that the way that a leader behaves actually changes the chemistry in people's brains and it changes their ability to get with the program and focus on the positive 
And the positive is thinking about other people before I think about my own needs. And so when our brains are working the best, I think about my coworkers. I think about my customers or the people that I'm serving. I think about the needs of the organization. I think about my relationship with my manager. I place other people in front of myself. But when I'm treated in a way where the fear cranks up or I don't feel like I'm being seen or valued, then what ends up happening is I go to a place where I am defending myself or I'm spending time and energy protecting myself rather than working with other people. And so what happens is I appear to be very selfish because I'm watching out for myself, right? And so so it's been so fun to watch the, the like all the research catch up to these things that my father has been saying, even the love thing. Um, Marcus Buckingham has just written a, written a book about it. And it's been very interesting. And he said, when people reflect on the best experiences in their life, when they were producing the best results and they and it was the most impactful, they use the word love. They love their job. They love the people they were working with. They love the challenge. They love the grind. They love the, the journey that we went through. They use the word love. It's not romantic love, but they love it. And they don't love all of it. They love about 20, they, they, you have to love about 20% of what you're doing. Because then the sacrifice becomes part of the pursuit of that thing that's so magical. And so it's so funny to, my father always kind of laughs. He goes, all these things that we've been talking about, you know, you guys have picked apart, but they've actually become true based on the research. And so I think that's one of the other um, things that's been very fun to kind of watch is is not, not so much as the inventor of these ideas, but watching them come, you know, to fruition. And in one of my roles is to, is to position these ideas that can be a little bit idealistic so that hard-nosed, financially oriented business people understand and don't dismiss the critical nature that leadership plays in the success of their company. Yeah, I totally get that. That's really an amazing kind of connection between theory, research, but also being visionary and now seeing things kind of come to life, especially now in these very, very challenging times that we are going through. Absolutely. Scott, there's there's one other thing. I mean, everybody knows the Hersey Blanchard, the Blanchard Hersey method of situational leadership. Uh, these guys were partners at one point in time, your father and Paul Hersey. And then something happens and somehow it didn't go that well because there's still some you know, you sense something is not quite right, it's not at peace. Uh, how did you experience that being, you know, the son growing up with this partnership? Um, you know, I knew Paul Hersey, you know, very well. Um, as a kid, he was my father's um, partner, you know, in many ways his mentor. So Paul was 10 years older than my father, and they were both professors at the uh, at Ohio University. And so my father's first job as a professor was uh, started in 1966 at, a, at a Ohio University in, in Athens, Ohio. And, uh, and my father met, met Paul because um, when my dad first got there, he wasn't even, he wasn't a professor. He was actually moving towards being a dean of students. And so one of the things that his dean said is that he, he needs all of his assistant deans to teach a course, you know, so that they're you know, that they're part of, you know, the university experience. And so, so he was, you know, teaching a course and, and through the course of that, he got to know Paul and he heard, and Paul was teaching a very engaging course on leadership. And, um, uh, 
my father ended up ended up befriending him. And um, and interestingly, um, my father took Paul's course, you know, on leadership because he wanted to audit it. But Paul said he doesn't let anybody audit his course. Um, and so you can take it for a grade. <laughs> so my dad did, and he went in, he, he wrote the papers, and he and he uh, and he did the course. And uh, and from that, they decided to uh, to do work together. They wrote a book together called Management of Organizational Behavior. Um, but before that, they came out with the first version of what's become situational leadership, which was called Life Cycle Theory of Leadership that appeared in the AT- ASTD, at that point now ATD, their annual journal. And so it was a reviewed article. And, um, and then as they got into the, uh, right in the beginning of the, of the 70s, they created the first publications of situational leadership, um, you know, the the original theory. And then my father moved to University of Massachusetts in 1970, uh, left the University of, of uh, left Ohio University, but then they continued to collaborate all the way through, um, all the way through the 70s, really around, uh, around situational leadership. And originally it was a theory and they, and they wrote it on flip charts. They didn't really have any materials. And they basically taught workshops and courses around, you know, around situational leadership. And then it became part of this uh, Center for Leadership Studies and then also the uh, California American University that were both started in the, you know, in the 70s. Um, And so it kind of went on, you know, that way. My dad left um, working with Paul in 1979. And then uh, by the time we got to 1984, uh, you know, my dad had had ideas about evolving um, the model and making some changes, especially to the bottom continuum. Um, and um, at that point, there was enough momentum around situational leadership that, you know, Paul didn't really, Paul and my father didn't didn't agree. They loved and respected each other. In fact, they went on to write 11 or 12 editions of management of organizational behavior. And I think the last edition that they wrote um, came out in the early 2000s. So they 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 collaborated together, you know, throughout their, their entire lives and careers. Um, but what happened is we we is they created an agreement for um, SL2 to begin, and SL2 first showed up in the literature in 1985, and uh, from 1985 up until 2016 or 2017, um, there was Situation Leadership Two that we um, at the Blanchard companies um, sold and produced in their with situational leadership, the original framework that the Center for Leadership Studies um, brought to the market. And um, and, th- and they kind of coexisted for, you know, for a long, long time. In fact, we shared a trademark um, because the, the trademark office in the United States did not see um, a, a big enough difference between SL2 and situational leadership to actually enable two different you know, trademarks. So that's the way that it worked forever. There's always been, you know, pe- people that prefer one, you know, or the other. Um, and they're, they're very, very similar. There's there's two distinctions that make them different. Um, and there's kind of two sets of opinions that make you know, each one of them uh, useful, you know, and valid. And then, um, and then Paul, after Paul died, um, we got into a situation where we actually uh, kind of facilitated you know, a a formal splitting um, that happened about four years ago, and so today we we uh, we bring um, SO two you know to the market, and um, and the uh, and the Hersey's and their the uh, 
the Center for Leadership Studies, they they bring situational leadership, you know, to the market. And so they're kind of like these two parallels. I always talk about, um, you know, it's sort of like a, you know, it's it's the way that like like a line of dogs, you know, split. So we so you have a dog, you know, that that's 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 um, you know, that's rated by the you know the AKC, and then enthusiasts from you know take it to Europe, and then the enthusiasts in North America stay here, and before you know it, the dogs are very similar, but there's actually you know a different sort of breed that develops over over time, and they share a lot of strong similarities. But ultimately, um, you know, they become distinctly different over time, and they end up having followers that prefer one versus the other. So sure. um, that's kind of the way it is. And I and I and I, I feel like it, there's plenty of room, and there's always been plenty of the room in the world for um, you know for both frameworks and both both models to to exist. Um, so um, you know, it's it's been an interesting thing to sort of watch unfold, you know, over all these. Um, all these years, and, and at this point, we're we're officially separated. So for a long time, we, you know, we shared a trademark, and now we've officially separated. But even to this day, and as recent as last week, um, we collaborate with the center um, around um, people that would be um, inappropriately using um, our framework or their framework, or oftentimes ones that are right in the middle. So there's a lot of people that really don't have understanding of and respect for um, copyright and trademark law, not only in this country, but in other countries. And so they'll sometimes actually amalgamate or create, you know, a, you know, like a, a model or they'll, they'll inappropriate use it. And a lot of times what they're doing is they're mixing the parts they love from SL, from, from SITLEAD and also from SL2. And so often we come together with these sort of hybrids, and then we'll we'll make sure that we're we're reminding those people of the, you know, of the of the copyrights and the trademarks, and um, and then many times we're like, huh, you seem to really like it, you seem to be using it. Um, we'd love to have you sell or or purchase um, either our framework or their framework rather than um, than doing something that is actually not permitted. Absolutely. So thank you for taking us on this journey through, you know, Blanchard and also you, the developer of the company, also your own development growing up into this company. Um, so 2022, what's next? I think there is a, a major rebranding coming up The you're as a company, you're very socially engaged. What's what's the vision for the future, Scott? Well, the vision is bright. I, I will say, um, you know, we, we remain a you know, proudly a uh, closely held family business. Um, what we're seeing right now and what we're doing is is we're we're spreading our wings to a certain degree. We have this traditional business, which we love, which is the published, you know, program business. And then we also, with our with our, our larger clients, are are creating um, leadership journeys that are or learning journeys that are that are bespoke for them, that are designed for each of their sets of groups. So we're continuing as a business the migration to make sure that we're our operating systems and our processes and our financials and our marketing and our product development efforts are really aligned around kind of a migration towards this new solution side of our business being kind of a, a, a stronger or a faster growing part, you know, of the business. And that's fueled by what clients want. You know, they want things that are spread out over time. Um, they really benefit from having multiple frameworks 
um, because then it's less like one program. And then what's the next program? It's, it's, we built that, you know, right in um, cohort based people coming together. Really important. Um, the other two principles that are really important is the beauty of, of technology and e-learning is I can learn something like, I'm not sure what you did this morning, but I consume news much more quickly and much more readily first thing in the morning, you know, than I did before. Um, and what, what the learning experience for is, is taking those things that people learn on their own a little more carefully, but putting it into a system where they, when people come together, they have a chance to dialogue. So uh, somebody that, that I love said that the highest and best use of the synchronous moment is not to teach. Mm-hmm. It's to get people to talk about what they weren't. So the business is moving in that direction. The other thing that we're making a big shift towards or an evolution is we've been so focused on serving the learning and development market. And that's what we do. We we serve people who are buying training development solutions globally for people that work in their companies. And so as such, we tend to, the people that we touch are limited to people that work for those sort of companies. Um, but what's interesting is there's a hundred million English speaking managers. You know, there's another probably 400 uh, managers that are that are speaking other languages as a first language. So there's, there's so many people out there that are managing people and everybody that works is either managing somebody or they're being managed by somebody. And almost everybody who's managing somebody is having trouble because human beings are difficult to manage. And so we feel like the the, the world, the market is so much larger. And with 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 the iPhone and with the internet, with technology, we, we really feel like we can actually serve a much larger group. So we're still really committed to serving the learning and development community, but we're actually working on um, two efforts that I think are exciting. One is to is to wrap our arms around and create a more intentional relationship with um, leadership development practitioners around the world that work independently, or they work with smaller companies, or even those ones that work internal, you know, to large companies. Is that the practitioners space is something that we're working on? So we're launching a whole community um, around practitioners. So we're so excited about that because there's, um, I mean, just coaches alone. There's, I'm not sure what the numbers are, but I bet you there's a million people around the world that are working as coaches that are trying to help leaders become better. And those coaches would love, and they do love to work with some of the valued you know, content that we have and some of the tools that we have. And so the idea of enabling coaches with um, with some expertise and some capability from that we have is really exciting. And then the other piece is, as I mentioned, there's all these people out there that they either are managing people or are being managed that, um, that can learn and would benefit from it. So we're actually launching, launching a, our first ever um, consumer app that's coming out in the beginning of the, of the year. We spent about two years developing it. And um, it's it's really exciting. It's it's called Leadify. And it's it's actually an, an app that is, is designed for people to um, really start with a different path. You know, in the, in the normal organization, it sort of starts with issues. We're having issues around trust. And then we start looking for a trust program and then you begin to vet the programs and then there's a, a model and then there's a set of skills and competencies and it goes all the way down to helping people manage trust, right? So from the consumer side, we know this from our blogs. My wife has been blogging for, for about seven years, just amazing every week, um, is people come to her with questions with 
there's somebody that works for me and I've got a real problem. I don't trust them, you know, and this is my evidence for not trusting them. Or I've got an employee who doesn't trust me and I'm very trustworthy. What's going on? Like I need some help figuring out what's gone wrong. And so people typically come in with an issue or I've got an issue where I have these two employees, they're not getting along. Or I have an issue where I have to confront somebody on their behavior, but I feel like they're intractable and it's just a fool's errand to go try to confront that behavior. And so people start with issues. And so with Leadify, we're starting with, I have an issue or I'd like to look at what you guys have, or I want to have some questions asked to see if you can help me because I'm not sure what, but, but I think I could get better. or I think I could solve this problem. Um, Help me, help me, help me. Right. So that's, so it begins that way. So we're taking our, our content and kind of reorganizing it. So it's totally exciting. You can see I get excited about this because I I think what's interesting, this is part of who I am, is I've always been really, really curious about what's happening around us and how can that apply to our world. And I'm just watching everybody with their iPhones in their hands and they're consuming content and they're not sitting down for a half a day on their iPhone going through a course, but they're consuming content and they're interacting with it and they're creating affinity groups and they're relating with people and they're participating actively with what they're learning. Um, and I think that we can be part of that um, much more explicitly because, you know, everybody who works is working for somebody and everybody who's leading people, almost everybody is challenged with it too. So so I'm, we're really excited about, about that. So the core business continues. We're migrating towards more of this these learning journeys. We still love the program business. And when we have an opportunity to come in and deliver a program and do it face-to-face, boy, do we love that. Um, given the choice, we steer, we're steering much more towards splitting things up over time. Um, but I'm very intrigued to see how we can create, um, you know, this larger community focus on the practitioners first and then on the the people that are actually out there working. And, and we keep thinking about how many people, um, small businesses, small family businesses, medium-sized businesses, you know, could benefit what we from what we teach. But given the current business model, they're just never going to see it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're never in the past. This is what was beautiful about my dad is people bought books and they bought the one minute manager and they bought leadership of the one minute manager. And so so the book was the scalable medium, you know, um, up until, you know, the last 15 or 20 years. But now, you know, the book is not the predominant way that people are actually learning about leadership. Right. It's all through Instagram. It's all through the Internet. And 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 so we're just really embracing that side of things. That's really innovative, and I really love that energy. Hearing you talk about it, it really is uh, infectious. I really get you know uh, caught up with that. That's really great. So um, Scott, the last question that we always ask is, what's the one thing that I haven't asked you yet? Hmm. I would say probably, you know, the one thing is. You know what's what's distinctly interesting about about our space that maybe we haven't we haven't talked about. Okay, and I, and I think it's an interesting time right now that's probably worth worth mentioning. Is uh, we're busy. There is a lot happening um, in the in the space, and great companies are continuing to invest in people, 
Interestingly, lousy companies are investing in their managers too because of this labor market and because of these changes and because of people going home. And, and this isn't just from COVID, but it started, you know, some time ago. And and I, I think I think we're in a bit of a of a golden era or maybe even a renaissance around people understanding the importance that leadership plays in people's lives. And I think we've also have seen so many of the negative aspects of leadership that are happening in the political world and also in companies that are failing or doing bad things. And so I, I feel like it's a really exciting space to be in because it's so prevalent and it's so personal. And what we always say is, you know, if people are not trusting their manager, if their manager doesn't have their back, they talk about it around the dinner table. They bring it into their personal lives. It affects them as human beings. And if it's really bad, it can make them sick. But when we work for a leader who's magnificent, people, people benefit from the fact that their manager often sees something in themselves that they didn't even see, like a higher potential. You know, and, and so I, I I feel like this space is really exciting. I'm loving where we are, but also I've just been watching it grow around us and it makes me excited because it feels like the the water is rising around the world with this this heightened interest in in the field of leadership, which my dad started studying, you know, back in the 60s. So it's a really, really exciting time to, I think, be part of what we're doing. And I can't wait to see what's going to happen over the next 20 years. That's a great closure. Thank you, Scott, so much for you know taking us on a journey through your life, your company, your vision, your enthusiasm going forward. Thank you so much. All the best to you. Thank you so much. It was a really fun conversation. Have a great day. And Thanks. you. Bye-bye. That was very interesting. I think his his enthusiasm is just so radiant. And you, I really get it. And it makes sense. And the way how he sees the industry, how, how he sees possibilities, um, but also how he's connected to the mission of the company and made this place his own. Um, that feels very authentic to me. What are your thoughts? Um, really looking forward to, to read your thoughts. Send us an email at leaderstalk at leadership-choices.com. Looking forward to reading from you. And now, thank you for listening. I wish you all the best and talk to you soon here on Leaders Talk. This was an episode of Leaders Talk the interview podcast portraying leaders who are committed to better leadership, better organizations, and a better world, powered by Leadership Choices.